feeling alone, feeling alienated, and having a sense of meaninglessness. Like, what's it all for? Why am I putting in all this work? I don't have a sense of direction. I don't have a sense of purpose. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to existentialism. If you've ever had those thoughts, you're curious about learning more about those things, this video is perfect for you. We're going to talk about existentialism from a philosophical perspective and what it looks like in actual therapy, which I will refer to as logotherapy. Now, whenever I use existentialism, existential therapy, or logotherapy, for the purpose of this video, I'm going to use it synonymously, all right? Here's what we need to know. When individuals are distressed, they try to find answers, and sometimes they do it by themselves, sometimes they do it with help. In this video, I'm going to talk about some of the basic tenets of existentialism or existential therapy and what it would look like if someone was to go to therapy. What is it based on? What are the fundamentals? And what are some questions you could begin to think about yourself, which could help open the door so you can start to learn more about this. If you haven't already seen my video on CBT, it's going to be very similar to that one. Eventually, I'm going to have a bunch of little videos out on different theoretical approaches so you can have a nice wide diversity. So existentialism is concerned with what does it mean to be a human being? Like what, what does it mean? What do we have to go through? And existentialism goes, well, look, being as humans, we have to accept two things. One, we are fundamentally flawed. There are certain things in life that we, like, we can't live forever, and we have to accept that, and we have certain limitations. We are not immune to pain. And yet, being a human being, we have certain opportunities that are specific to us, that aren't, let's say, to other animals. So we have to accept both of these. If you're interested in this stuff, some really famous philosophers really pioneered these ideas. You might have heard of uh, Kierkegaard or Jean-Paul or uh, Nietzsche and some famous psychologists slash counselors who went on to emphasize this in therapy were people like Viktor Frankl, who wrote Man's Search for Meaning, Rollo May. So these ideas have been modified and changed and passed down, but essentially... The bulk idea is this. Being a human being is complicated. There's certain suffering that we're going to face that's unavoidable. And in life, an existentialist would say, we are continuously changing. We are continuously evolving. We are shedding our past skin and growing new skin with our different challenges, our behaviors, our values, our beliefs. And what oftentimes happens or what happens to a lot of people is they face a sort of crisis or certain anxiety about things. I'm sure you've heard of, oh, so-and-so is having a midlife crisis. They get to 40, they go, holy smokes, I'm halfway through my life. All of a sudden, they go buy that brand new sports car, or they go have an affair, or they quit their job out of nowhere, right? So you've heard of that term before. So the question becomes, as we're going through life, how do we deal with that anxiety? Like, how do I find meaning in my life? How do we take those philosophical concepts that are so abstract, apply them in a practical psychological way? Here are six principles or six fundamentals of existentialism, of local therapy that I'd like to share with you that a therapist would go through with their client. And this way we can become aware and we can get a better understanding of the way existentialism gives people purpose, alleviates distress, lowers anxiety. Okay. So the first tenet of existentialism, the first principle, is the principle of self-awareness. Existentialism goes, you need to open your eyes and recognize the impact that you have on your own life and other people's lives. You can choose to engage in action 
or choose to not engage, but it is still your choice. You can go quit your job. You can keep your job. You can go to class. You can skip class. You can ask her out. You can not ask her out. These are things that are in your control. And we need to be aware of these things. We need to become aware of our identity. Who are you? How do you identify? How do people refer to you? How do people perceive you? And how do you perceive yourself? So self-awareness is essentially taking a step back and going, how much of my beliefs are my own versus how much of the beliefs have I incorporated from the people around me? Have I just conformed to the beliefs that other people have put on me like labels? Okay, so self-awareness in a nutshell is taking a step back and going, okay, let me think about who I am, not who society tells me I should be. All right? This leads us directly to number two, freedom and responsibility. What oftentimes happens is people tell themselves, I want freedom. Like, I want, to, I want control. I want to have some autonomy in my life. And yet they do things simultaneously that takes autonomy away. I'll give you an example. If someone says, kids like me don't go to private school, or guys like me don't end up in happy relationships, what have I just done? I've just said that because of my DNA, because of my genetics, because of my upbringing, whatever, people like me can't have X. And because they can't, I'm not even going to bother trying. So when I say I can't do this, I diffuse responsibility. Well, I'm not even going to try. Like I don't even have to try. A guy like me can never go to the NBA. A guy like me can never be happy with his job. A guy like me can never get a girl like that. And with that sort of a mentality, well, I've just ripped away my freedom. I'm disempowering myself. I'm saying, look, this is the situation. And even though it feels terrible, it rids me of anxiety of trying to change it. Rather than going, I have a say in what I do today. Look, maybe my finances aren't the best. Maybe my relationships aren't the best. But if I work out every single day, 20 minutes a day, I have a partial say in my destiny in the future five years from now. Like what I do today actually makes a difference. And not taking action is a decision. Like it's not like, oh, I'm going to be neutral, so I'm not going to do anything. That's a decision in and of itself. You chose not to intervene and you must suffer the consequences. Why? If I tell you you can't, if I tell you you have the freedom to do it, if you don't do it, it hurts that much more. Why? It's your responsibility to do it. Dare I say you have a responsibility to take care of yourself. And if you start off with having beliefs such as, I'm a lost cause, I'm a loser, I can't change, guess what? You wipe your hands clean. But if you start thinking, I could change my life, I could start bettering myself, but I'm not, now that increases anxiety, right? Because you start sitting there and going, well, I'm not happy with where I am in life. How much of that is my fault? How much of that do I need to take responsibility for? Because if I can, and I'm choosing not to, that's different than I cannot. And I'm choosing, and, and I won't do. So number one is self-awareness. Number two is we recognize our actions matter. And if our actions matter, you have a direct influence on the outcome of this movie. What you do in act one will impact you in act two and act three and how this movie ends. If you've ever played like a video game where you make choices, 
Your choices matter. And depending on what choices you make, you'll either get the good ending or you'll get the bad ending. So, freedom and responsibility. Number three, creating an identity for yourself and establishing meaningful relationships. This is very connected to the first two in that you take a step back and you think about, okay, like, who am I? Who, like, what do I want in life? What do I do? What are my beliefs about myself? What things do I engage in? What things do I not engage in? What sort of beliefs do I have that hinder my life and that hinder my growth? What sorts of beliefs do I have that benefit me, that push me forward, that allow me to do greater things? If I deep down think that I'm lazy, what are the odds I'm going to sign up for a club that needs me to attend twice a week? I can't do that. I'm lazy. If I think I'm a poor communicator, what are the chances I'm going to go out there and start dating people? Or the moment something starts to go not so good, I'm just going to bounce because I'm not a good communicator, so I couldn't make it work even if I tried. And secondly, alongside identity, is establishing meaningful relationships. And the key here is having relationships that make you feel fulfilled, that make you better. I'm better when I'm with you. I'm happier. I laugh more. You challenge me. You bring the best out of me. And when I say something dumb, you call me out on it. Not in a rude way, but in a constructive way. I'm happier around you. I'm better around you. You call me out if I say something that doesn't make sense so that at least I only get embarrassed in front of you and not in front of other, everybody else. And I'm not with you because I can't feel happy by myself. Because that's a problem in and of itself. If I can't feel happy being alone, then I'm only using you to get something. Like my relationship with you is a means to an end. I'm only spending time with you because it's better than being alone. Folks, that's a problem. I'm not just spending time with you because it's better than being alone. I'm spending time with you because I find it fulfilling. Because it makes me feel good. Because it, it makes me happy. It makes me feel empowered. Our discussions are interesting. I value our friendship. I value our discussions. I value when you challenge my ideas. So to have relationships is not enough. We want them to be meaningful. We want them to be fulfilling. Number four, searching for meaning. So existentialism is crafted in this idea of searching for meaning. And a beautiful quote I just read was, paradoxically, the harder we search for meaning in a rational and logical way, the less likely we are to find it. If you're searching for meaning in your life, according to existentialists, Look at what you value, and what you value will give you meaning. So existentialists don't believe like there's a meaning in life. They go, no, no, no. You have to decide what you find meaningful. There, there isn't one size fits all, right? So the question becomes, well, like, what do you value? And one of my professors who was a clinical psychologist said she would have this kind of pyramid. And she'd say, look, let's make a hierarchy of values. What do you value from least important to most important? Like, what matters to you? So the question becomes, Daniel, how the heck do I figure out what matters to me? She goes, it's very simple. You ask somebody, what did you do today? Just describe your day to me. And then I might say, well, you know, I woke up at 10. Um, yeah, I pressed the snooze button like three times. And then I scrolled on my phone for about 30 minutes. And then I went worked out. Then I went to work. Then I came home. Then I went out and saw my friends. You might take a step back and go, okay. What she's thinking in her head is, well, he woke up at 10. He pressed the snooze button three times. So 
either this is an exception or Daniel generally doesn't value mornings. Like he doesn't care much for breakfast. He didn't tell me about what he had for breakfast, meaning it wasn't important enough for him to mention. But he did mention the workout. He did mention going to work. So it tells me fitness plays a role in his life. And then after work, he told me he went and saw his friends. And that means if after an eight-hour shift, you're going to hang out with people afterwards, that must be pretty fulfilling. Now, I did that in a day. But what you could do is you could do that across a week. Hey, describe this week to me. And if there's overlapping patterns of I'm pressing the snooze button every day or I'm hanging out with friends three times a week or I'm making sure to watch this Netflix show every single night, the actions that I engage in tell you about what I value in life. And then the things that I value in life bring me meaning. So when we search for meaning, when we search for purpose, when we search for values, when we search for direction, to quote my clinical psychologist professor, it goes back to creating a hierarchy of our values. Like, I want to find meaning in my life. Where is it? Mm -mm. What am I doing every day? What are my habits in a week? Oh, I practice tennis three times a week. So I value tennis. So tennis brings my life meaning. I see my friends three times a week. That's something that I value. That brings me meaning. I regularly skip breakfast and like I wake up at 1030. I don't value the mornings. I'm just not a morning. That doesn't bring me value. That doesn't bring me meaning. And that's okay. And folks, having meaning, finding meaning in something could be as simple as saying, look, I love nothing more on a Sunday morning, waking up at 9 a.m., fresh cup of coffee, reading my favorite book out on my porch. I value that calmness so much. That's what brings me meaning. It doesn't have to be this over-the-top, crazy, wild thing. Folks, think simple. Think simple. So again, the best advice that I got, think values. Think what do you do in a day? What do you do in a week? And then you'll very quickly latch on to, yeah, I guess, yeah, I do take nutrition very seriously. Oh, okay. I guess I value that a lot. Well, what does that say about me? Well, I value my health. Oh, okay. That brings me, and then we get the ball rolling. Number five, anxiety as a condition for living. So if you go to your therapist and you go, look, doc, I don't want to feel anxious anymore. Do your magic. It doesn't work like that. It's kind of like if you went to your medical doctor, your family doctor, you said, look, I don't ever want to feel pain again. Like if I break my arm, I just don't want to feel pain. That's not a realistic expectation. A better way to approach it is when I feel anxious, everything goes to chaos. Like existentialists would call this neurotic anxiety. I get overwhelmed. I can't do anything. It's like I go into, it's like I get paralyzed. What I would like to happen is when I get anxious, I like to be able to stay calm and still move forward. Like that's what I want. How can I manage my anxiety versus how can I get rid of it? So what existentialists really want to hammer home is anxiety is a part of life. There is no world where we don't have anxiety. We have normal anxiety, neurotic anxiety. Normal anxiety is you have a test coming up, you feel anxious. Of course, it's normal to feel anxious. You have a presentation coming up. You've got something that you value a lot and there's some stress. It's normal to feel anxious. It'd be a little weird if you weren't anxious. But what people talk about anxiety in a negative light is what existentialists would say neurotic anxiety. It's, it's overwhelming. It's, there's so much anxiety about something that's going to happen in the future that it's preventing you from living your life today. 
And that anxiety is hindering you. And it's harming you. It's harming your everyday life. So you can't move forward as much as you would like to. So what existentialists do is they sit you down and they go, listen, you're going to have anxiety. There are going to be different job promotions. There's going to be different relationship factors. The important thing is this. How can we learn to manage it and how can we learn to cope with it? And once we change our perspective to that, it's a little bit similar to what people would say about stress. Then we can live a more realistic and resilient life because of that perspective. And the last principle that I want to share with you folks about ex existentialism, about logotherapy that they talk to you about between a therapist and a client, is awareness of death. Existentialists oftentimes talk about looking at your client and really addressing this idea of death. Like, hey, are you aware that your time is finite? Like, I know it's weird, right? If you're a 25-year-old guy looking for meaning and your therapist is like, you're going to die someday. You're like, yeah, yeah, but that's far off in the future. It's like, okay, look, what are your plans? Well, me and my girlfriend, you know, like things are going well and I might propose to her next year and I'm, you know, thinking of applying to grad school for this archaeology degree. It's like, yeah, yeah. What if you get hit by a bus tomorrow and none of that happens? Like, do you realize that that's a possibility? Do you realize like the millions of people who've had plans like you and there's a war between two countries and they get bombed or they get hit by a car or someone's loved one gets cancer and their plans completely change? You know, you sit down with a young person and you go, hey, how old are your parents? 75 and 73? Okay. Did you, when was the last time you saw them? Did you see them Christmas last year? Oh, you didn't because you had a fight. I see. How many more Christmases do you think you have left together? How many more times can you see them? Let's say the average age is 78. Let's just make something up. Okay. So for your one parent, you have three Christmases left. For the other one, you've got five. You visit your parents how many times a year? Once a year. In other words, you get to see your parent three more times. You get three more times where you can see them, where you can listen to them laugh, where you can hug them, where you can talk to them, where you can tell them everything that you've wanted to tell them. If you're lucky, you have three more conversations to have. If you're not, then, it's, then that's that. Death is real. Death is going to come. And the way that we get more comfortable with it is not by avoiding it, it's actually by talking about it. Your mom's not going to be around forever. You visit her once a year, every year for Christmas. Statistically speaking, how many more times do you think you're going to see her? If I told you right now you're going to see your loved one maximum four more times, think about the way you'd interact with them. Think about the discussions you'd have. Think about the things you'd tell them. If there's anything you want to tell them, if there's anything you've been holding on to or holding back, my friends, I, I very rarely recommend things. I very rarely give advice. But with this one, please keep this in mind. Life is not infinite. It is finite. If you've got something to say, the time is ticking. And it's not, you know, life is meaningless because I don't have a lot of time. It's actually the complete opposite. Life is meaningful because I don't have a lot of time. I only have a certain amount of time to do what I need to do. It's like, get after it, my friends. Get after it. Because we don't have forever. I hope you folks enjoyed this video. This was just a little bit about existentialism. Some of the six 
fundamentals that existentialism or logotherapy is dependent on. If you're interested in this stuff, I would definitely recommend following me, whether it's on podcasting platforms, subscribing on YouTube, and comment me. Let me know. DM me on Instagram. What topics would you like to see? Do you like this theoretical approach stuff? Do you want to see more? Is there a certain disorder you're more interested in? Eating disorders, anxiety disorders, certain current events you want me to talk about? Let me know. I'm always open to it. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Take care and bye-bye.